Hello, Mark. Joe, how are you? I'm good, as usual. Nothing to complain about. I should never ask. You're always good. You're always just like steady state good. No, it'll be the one day that you don't ask, you know? <laughs> and you'll say, now Mark doesn't like me anymore. But I, I have to pretend, don't I? Because, you know, here we are in a podcast situation. Can I really say, I'm really not doing well, Mark? You can to me, but yeah, maybe the listeners might not want to hear that. Yeah. No, no, that's <laughs> not what they're tuning in for. Yeah. So what they are tuning in for is they want to know what the hair situation was in the 90s. They hit, that's yeah yeah that's what they're tuning in for that's what they're tuning in for yeah so that there were you were working at the CBC at that point so probably it wasn't too crazy but just out of interest you know what was happening back then on top with the hair yeah what was you your mean, hair like yeah what was my your, hair yeah what was your hair like well it's kind of an interesting question I went gray early my first gray hair was when I was uh, twelve years old my mother was. Uh, horrified she's like oh my god and she went and she immediately plucked it out and then i was fine until i was about 22 and then i was sitting in the uh radio and television arts lounge at ryerson and my friend allison george from across the room she suddenly shrieked and she leapt up and she she's like joe the sunlight just reflecting off your two gray hairs that i see there and i was like what and i ran to the washroom and looked in the mirror and i'm like sure enough there was two gray hairs at the age of 22 and for maybe 30 seconds i was horrified and then i was like eh, now i look like steve martin <laughs> <laughs> exactly steve martin is a good role model and as long as it doesn't fall out i mean you know it started to recede you know kind of in the well, front of course, and whatnot, but it's, yeah. yeah yeah it's mostly still there so that's that's the saga of the hair <laughs> what about well, you i was asking because back then my my hair did go gray it actually didn't go gray i went white so I have like white hair because I was a ginger. Ah, yes. Or I still, I guess I still am technically, though you wouldn't be able to know that from looking at the color of my hair. But yeah, I had like I had the ginger hair, and I did the long hair at one point. It was the '90s, right? So, and I wasn't in a professional setting for much of the '90s, so yeah, it was all over the place. At one point, I tried to grow it really long. It was really, it was horrible. I look at pictures, and I go, "Oh God." <laughs> I always wanted uh, a ponytail because I. I thought guys who could rock a ponytail were were cool, but I could never. I was accused of having kind of a mullet, which I'm yeah. I didn't about. have a mullet, but it was yeah. It was good. It wasn't a good situation. Yeah. So this is usually yeah. when we embarrass the guest and ask the guest what happens with their hair. Not always. Usually it's another question. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've asked about hair. <laughs> Noah Chin, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Ah, uh, hello. Happy to be here. Is, is this what we should be? Because I know that you have some initials in there in your oh, name. Oh, uh, JD, Joseph Davidson. Yeah. So what do we call you? Are you Noah or are you JD? Depends on what books you're reading. Ah, uh, oh. okay. <laughs> I, uh, a while ago, like I remember hearing about um, a, a science fiction author by the name of Ian Banks, who also wrote mystery novels. And he would write his mystery novels under, I believe, Ian Banks or and his science fiction under Ian M. Banks. Mm -hmm. I just remember uh, it being referred to as like the easiest pseudonym to break. Uh, and I thought, eh, you know what, maybe something similar for me, because uh, my, I've got science fiction and fantasy type stories on the one hand. But then I have other ones that are sort of contemporary mystery or romantic comedy, modern day slice of life type stories as well. And so I figured I'd use that to differentiate it for the sake of uh, the evil marketing algorithms that exist out there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
So the without the initials is for what? Oh, so Noah Chin I use for my genre fiction and Noah J.D. Chin I use for my more contemporary stuff. Okay. And so before we get into uh, more of a bio, which we'll ask you about shortly, you got to answer the question about yeah, the, hair. the hair, man. What, ha- what was yeah. happening up top in the 90s? The 90s? Uh, not much. I've been, I've been <laughs> cutting my own hair since uh, I started university to save money. I've never been the sort of person who cared about that sort of thing. I do remember when I got my first gray hair, so it's a bit sad because it was when my, uh, my, my grandmother who raised me, uh, she had had a stroke. And I had to fly back from England to Oshawa in order to, you know, like to, to be there for her. And during that flight back, when I just wasn't feeling too good and went into the, uh, the lavatory, I was looking in the mirror in the, uh, on the airplane. And just right there, I saw two white hairs right on the <laughs> oh, front no. of my head there. And it just really struck me at that moment. Yeah, that is kind of a sad story. Yeah, yeah, I've never gone sorry. gray though. I'm. I mean, I've still got. I've got a tiny bit of salt sprinkled up there, but uh, for the most part, I still got brown hair. Here we ask, uh, how old you are? Oh, fifty. Okay, yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's that's natural. pretty normal. That's, uh, that's pretty. Yes. Yeah. Like I have, you know, like a pretty much full head of gray hair now, but I'm 111 years old, so that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I okay. started losing my hair at 40. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of hair there mark the worst thing that ha- yeah I, yeah from the front it looks great the worst thing that happened to me was actually with my goatee because i had like i called it the soup stain so like i had a red beard except for like this one patch underneath one corner of my mouth that, <laughs> that was white it looked like i constantly had spilled soup in myself oh, <laughs> oh brother so i'm guessing uh mark that you're are you asking about the hair because of uh londo in, uh, yeah, because that's all I know about Babylon 5 is the crazy hair. Like, I've seen pictures with Babylon 5 characters, and that's all I go. is like, that's like some crazy 80s level hair going on there. So I figured that was the right time to ask uh, the hair question. So that obviously is what we're talking to Noah about today, uh, Babylon 5. Yeah. And so has did the Londo's hair... It is Londo, right? Who has the, the crazy yeah, L- hair? Londo Malari, yeah. Yeah. Who plays that character, by the way? Peter Jurassic, I believe the actor's name Jurassic, is. Jurassic, okay. A great performance. Did did the hair put you off then, Mark? Is that what you've never seen the show? No, not at all. No. Um, no, it's weird if you this is probably doubtless gonna happen, but it just hasn't happened yet. But there was a time period in the nineties when I just I just wasn't watching television. Actually, through the late eighties I wasn't. When I was at university, I really wasn't watching television. I didn't have cable. And then undergrad living in Prague. Shut up. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, so I just never had a cable or ever had television. And then, you know, I got back to Canada and I was really busy. And again, I didn't really need it. So yeah, I just didn't watch television for probably at least 10 years. I mean, I, I'm aware of what happened and right. I've since seen some of it, but all the Star Trek next generation stuff that kind of happened when I wasn't really watching television. So I've since you missed a lot of good TV. I did probably miss a lot of good TV and Babylon five. This it's account. It's apparently one of them. Yeah. So yeah, Noah, you can, you can convert me and help me understand why <laughs> I should good. go back yeah. and watch Babylon five. I will <laughs> do my best. <laughs> okay. So before we do that, Noah, so what we do in this podcast is we ask our guests to introduce themselves to frame their own reality. Uh, so geez, uh, let's see. Uh, well, I was born in Oshawa, Oshawa, Ontario, and I've never really forgiven it for that. 
Aside mm. from that, I mean, I've traveled a bit. I bicycled across Canada back in 2000 from Victoria to St. John. Mm. After that, I uh, moved to Japan with uh, the woman who would eventually be my wife to teach English. And after three years, I didn't end up learning a single word of Japanese. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> um, something I'm trying to correct now with Duolingo. <laughs> but uh, then I was in England for about five years because I figured, uh, you know what? If I, It's like, you know how actors will, they go to Hollywood because they want to make it big. You know, if you want to be an actor, you got to go where the action is. Well, there's two places I, that come to mind for writing that would be, and that would be for publishing. And that would be New York and London. So I figured, hey, if I'm in London, maybe I can get myself an agent. And the best I was able to do was work at a bookstore. That was above a sex shop. <laughs> well, at least they had interesting neighbors. Indeed. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I think weirder people ended up going to the bookshop. I had to work in the sex store sometimes, you know, and the people down there were perfectly normal. But up in the bookstore, sometimes you get the really kind of like strange conspiracy theory type people lurking in the corners, asking you for very like, you know, David Icky books and stuff like that. And <laughs> brother. So were, were the bookstore and the sex shop owned by the same people? Yep. It was a chain. Actually, there's a whole bunch of them in London <laughs> called Soho original books. Oh my God. I yeah. want to see the pitch deck for that business. This is before the death of DVDs, right? Downstairs, it would be all DVDs and stuff like that. And then upstairs, it was all um, bargain books and whatnot. So I normally would be running up there. I even did the ordering. So I got to change the inventory around and make it my bookstore, which was cool. And then every time the sales started going up, they, for some reason, they'd shut the store down and move me to a different one. And did you order uh, for the sex shop as well? No, different people work downstairs. I only sometimes <laughs> went down there to cover them, you know, like if somebody was going on lunch or something like that. So <laughs> I have a question. Was there like a, a, a beaded door and then the stairwell that led up to the bookstore? And that's how you got to the, like, it was the shameful thing was to f go buy the books, not to visit the sex shop. <laughs> sometimes, admittedly, sometimes you had people, they would, you knew, you could spot them right away. They would come in and they would do a, like a casual, oh yeah, I'm browsing the bookstore, walk around, you know, and then they would go to the stairs that led downstairs and just casually, you know, try to slip down without gotcha. being noticed. But honestly, most people would just, you know, there, there, there's no, there's no shame in it, really. I mean, honestly, we're we're all kind of like a little pent up about that sort of thing, oh. and I think most people just they uh, would just go straight down. I mean, where I worked in Kilburn, my coworker said he saw Stephen Fry come in and go straight down in there at one point. Don't know if it's true. I hope it is, because uh, I think that's awesome. It is odd. As I think others have pointed out, you know, that we can watch like uh, the John Wick franchise and we have no trouble whatsoever. Well, maybe some trouble. I do have a bit of trouble with it, but a lot of people don't have any trouble watching John Wick murder hundreds, if not thousands of people in, in three or four <laughs> thousands, movies. Yeah. <laughs> sure you seems know? like it. Yeah. And so that kind of violence and death and, and murder and, and, and whatnot is, uh, I guess, okay. But-, but you know, watching the act of sex is not. Yeah. God forbid know, you see a female uh, presenting nipple. It is a strange uh, kind of hypocrisy for sure. And they're a lot less uptight about it in England than they are in America and to a lesser extent, Canada, or maybe the same extent, really. 
Yeah, it's funny because I was imagining it was the reverse situation that the main entrance was through the sex shop and it was the bookstore that was the clandestine <laughs> secretive place that people were like, oh, no one's watching. I'll, I'll dip into the bookstore now. That would <laughs> feels be that way nowadays. <laughs> so, so tell us about uh, your writing, your books. Well, I've done a wide variety of genres, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, I I mentioned I lived in Japan. Well, I wrote a book about a teacher in Japan at one point called The Professional Tourist. I've done, you know, like rom-coms. And I even wrote a, uh, a romance with her name's Lauren Smith, and she normally does Regency era romances. And she wanted to do a science fiction uh, romance and, you know, make a very sexy science fiction story. And uh, she came to me with uh, her first draft. And I mean, I like the, the core idea of it, but the world building just sort of had this vibe to it that sort of felt like it was being made up as it went along. And so I asked her to give me her, um, her notes about the world building, and it was about three pages. And I turned that within a few weeks into about 30 pages and it grew from there. And uh, the reason I mentioned this is because I like the setting so much that I decided that like, since we were co-authors on that book, by the end, I decided I'm going to try setting my own science fiction stories within this same universe. And so uh, I've got right now, I call it the get lost saga right now. It's consisting of two books, uh, lost souls and lost cargo. And I'm working on the third book in the trilogy called lost lives and yeah, it's all set from this same setting that started off as a science fiction romance setting. When do you know you'll be done when you when you write Lost Luggage? That'll be... <laughs> yeah, that, that that could be that could be one of the little short stories that short goes story. in between. <laughs> and how's the author book selling career going? Could be better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a self-publisher. Um, I have been published by a small press down in the States called Mundania. They're not around anymore, but I was published through there. When I was in England, I did have an agent for the book, The Professional Tourist, but it never ended up finding a, uh, a publisher. And just uh, a couple of years ago, I decided, I mean, I was still trying and I just thought, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to try going the self-publishing route. It seems to be the way things are going right now. And mm. so, yeah, I decided to, to do that and I'm learning a lot, but it's, it is a bit of a struggle still trying to find your audience. So, and we will get to, to Babylon 5 uh, soon because there's lots to talk about there, but uh, I'm always interested in the, uh, in the author's journey. And uh, so I want to ask you, okay, you're self-published. Mark and I, we've been with the small publishers as well and, uh, and currently do our own uh, self-publishing. Does it matter? Hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter in the sense of, I mean, I'm getting the books out there to people, but it does matter in the sense of the, all of that weight is on me to get the books out to people. Like mm -hmm. the mar I have to be my own marketer and that's not an easy thing. Um, it's really challenging, you know, trying to get up a newsletter, trying to work up promotions, trying to, to do advertising, what works, what doesn't, uh, all that stress is on you. And unfortunately, even with small presses, most of the time, all that stress is on you too. There's only so much uh, small presses usually are able to do in that regard. I know at the very least the one I worked with, most of the effort was put on me still. So it's like, well, if, if I'm going to be doing most of this work anyway, I might as well get more of the royalties. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it, I understand that's quite often the case with some larger publishers too, is that you don't, you still have to hustle. 
Yeah, you still have to hustle. I mean, uh, it's only the darling sort of get the royal treatment. So uh, yeah. trying to get to that point, that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One day we need to devote a, another entire maybe podcast series to that. But for now, on to Babylon 5. So why did you want to talk to us about Babylon 5? Well, the um, the premise of your show is about works of art in whatever form of media that influences us as creative people. And when you first mentioned that, it that was the very first thing that came to mind as to what had the most impact on me growing up. I mean, I grew up loving Star Trek, for example, uh, you know, like as as a little kid when uh, back in the days when we had UHF and antennas and all that, <laughs> I was picking up uh, classic Kirk and Spock on uh, UHF from uh, from Buffalo. That's how things started off for me. But I also knew that was the generation before I was picking up on something that was made for someone else, not for me. But in school, that's when Star Trek The Next Generation first came out. And, you know, like I knew that was being aimed at me and I was growing up with that. And I enjoyed it. But at the same time, one of the problems I ended up having with television as a whole was the nature of syndication. I really had this problem with how shows were set up so that, and I learned later that it was done on purpose, that it didn't really matter what order you watched them in. Everything was meant to yeah. be standalone because you wanted to get up to X number of episodes to hit syndication so that, you know, that's where the money was. And therefore it didn't matter what order stations necessarily showed things in, you know, like it, you'd always get what you wanted, but at the same time, they were always single servings. And I, and part of me wanted a longer story, wanted something that had consequences that carried on, carried forward. And then lo and behold, this pilot comes out for a show called Babylon 5 on a network that really shouldn't have existed. It was uh, something called PTEN, and it was a desperate attempt to try and make a fifth network. You had ABC, CBC, CBS, and Fox. And there was somewhat like, you know, the PTEN was trying to wedge themselves into that. And I think they were connected to uh, Warner Brothers. But this pilot movie for Babylon 5 came out along with some other really bad science fiction things, something called Time Tracks that was a uh, uh, time travel science fiction and other stuff. I mean, the 90s was full of bad science fiction, but something about the, the pilot movie really stuck out to me and even though it wouldn't be for another year or two before the show actually got picked up and we would have a full season. I mean, I watched that first pilot movie a half dozen times, at least over the summer, hmm. something about it really spoke to me because I could sense the possibilities that it was laying down for a long-term story. Yeah. That's wow. very cool. Cause that, and that's so true because if you think about a lot of television that we grew up with, nobody learn ever really learns anything. Like if they, they might learn something within the episode, but they've forgotten it by the start of the next episode. Hit the reset button. Yeah. It's like everyone's like constantly resetting. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember consciously wondering about that and thinking about that with, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, happy days or, or what it was that I was watching. And I'm like, yeah, how, why don't they remember what happened in the last episode? And I, so I know that Straczynski does that. And that's one of the groundbreaking things. Jim Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5 and main showrunner. But he wasn't the first, was he? Didn't didn't it kind of originate with Hill Street Blues? Uh, I'm specifically thinking in terms of science fiction, of course. Right. Uh, you said Hill Street Blues. That I actually never watched that show, so it was the first for me. 
Oh, wow. You guys both have some catching up to do. So you got to watch Hill Street Blues and Mark has to watch Babylon 5. Uh, both amazing television. So Hill Street Blues had like sort of a long-term arc to it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I th- I just always assumed it was a police law and order police procedural type thing. No, it was a it was a ground. Okay, so we're now talking about Hill Street Blues for the rest. Of the <laughs> Slight digression. <laughs> the 80s. Yeah. Let's start yeah. with Hill Street Blues. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was one of the one of the first to uh, to have like the the episodic memory. But I think where Straczynski uh, really took it to the next level was Hill Street Blues had the episodic memory, but Straczynski had the season long arcs. Mm-hmm. And the, and the series arc. I mean, it was always yeah. planned that there would be five seasons. I mean, uh, he was going to be able to settle for four for various reasons, but he planned it. He wanted it to be five and that thankfully eventually got the five seasons. That's really cool. So that would have been 90, like what, 94, 95 when the first season came out? Then? Uh, I don't have the dates with me, but it was the early 90s. Yeah. yeah. So that's really pretty ahead of its time. Because I don't think, was anyone else doing that at the time, Joe? I mean, I don't know, because I wasn't watching television. (laughs) As far as I know, no other show had at that time had done something that had the idea of an arc where it would actually have a planned end to it. Because oftentimes, and it's still true often today, it's like, well, if a show's doing well, keep those seasons coming until everyone's sick of it. Yeah. (laughs) One, One of the things I liked about Babylon 5 was that I mean, as I was watching the first season, I sort of realized that there was a strong Tolkien influence going on here. Hmm. The the show itself, I kind of started... Now, some of it's just superficial. I was just equating people like, oh, the Mimbari are like the elves. And, uh, you know, the the Narn, they're kind of like the dwarves, even though they're tall, but they've got that dwarf vibe going about them. There, there was places like this this mysterious place that's overrun by evil called Zahadum, which is basically um, an anagram of Kazadum, which is the Mines of Moria. You know, <laughs> right. there was lots of little things in there, and even just the idea of the overall arc. Because in Lord of the Rings, you have this this story that is culminating. It's all about destroying the One Ring. And it's a battle that can't be won through force of arms. The whole idea is they got to get this ring to the the volcano, to to Mount Doom, destroy it that way. That's what wins, not the idea of great armies. The great armies, if anything, are holding the line while that happens. And that's pretty much exactly what happens in the fourth season of Babylon 5. Hmm. Likewise, the the denouement of uh, Lord of the Rings, the scouring of the Shire is almost mirrored in Babylon 5 because after the uh, the main storyline regarding these great epic forces is resolved, there's still a matter of liberating Earth because at the Earth has sort of come under the fall of a, a dictatorship. And again, it's like it feels like the scouring of the Shire in that sense of how they have to liberate it. So those ones are less superficial. Some of them are superficial, but I just, as I was watching it, saw so many tiny little comparisons to Lord of the Rings that it just made me happy. Huh. And do, do you think that, or do you know whether that was uh, deliberate on Straczynski's part? I mean, the Casa Doom, Zaha Doom thing, there's no way that was an accident. <laughs> Even the way that, if you look at the spellings of them, the, the, the way they were pacing it out, there's definitely homage there. I, but I don't think he was trying to make a uh, any kind of, how to put it, Tolkien himself often uh, said about, uh, that he despised allegory in all of its forms. He preferred applicability 
when it came to the messages within stories. And I think Babylon 5, there's a lot of applicability to it in terms of comparing it to Lord of the Rings, but it's not meant to be an allegory for Lord of the Rings by any stretch. Yeah, and maybe because I, I know that very quickly Straczynski was writing all of the episodes mm-hmm. and, uh, and he didn't write all of them in the entire series, but he did uh, eventually write the Alliance share of them. And so maybe it's possible uh, because he had to come up with ideas uh, so quickly that he had to have some kind of a template in his brain. And maybe, maybe that template was Lord of the Rings. I don't think so, because when I mentioned before that he had a five-year arc planned, right. that is that he had it all written out. He didn't have the scripts written out, but he had right on his desk all of the story cards regarding all the points that would be hit along that five-year journey. Uh, not only that, he had what he called trap doors for all the main characters, because dealing with the reality of um, Hollywood television, Mm. you never know if you're going to be able to get the same actors the next season. Maybe someone gets a movie deal and he has to leave or something. So all of the main characters, he had reasons for them to leave and he had substitute characters ready to fill in for them. So he, uh, he may not have had the scripts written out all at once, but he definitely had all the story beats written out at once. So he planned that much of it right from the start. So there, there might have been a character called Golf Dan that we just never got to see. <laughs> well, there are these, there was in one episode, these people called techno mages, which uh, <laughs> they have like advanced technology and yeah. use that. And, but they, they hide it under the guise of magic. So it seems like magic, but it's actually technology. And yeah, that the, the main guy that led the techno mages gave me a bit of a Gandalf vibe. And there sure. was a gray There's one no and a blue one and a brown one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember a, a classic line uh, one of the techno mages uh, omitted. I, I don't know it perfectly, but it was something along the lines of, I know 20 words that can make a person fall in love with me and seven words that can make them fall out of love with me and feel no pain. <laughs> yeah, I remember I that. that. Great... I remember that. Yeah, yeah, for Elric, I think that was the name of the, uh, the techno mage that, that said that. Yeah, that was a very cool bit. Yeah. People often asked Straczynski what those words were. <laughs> And does, it, does he have an answer? Um, I think he sort of hid a, a sort of answer in one of his replies to it. I don't recall right now, but it was more of just a matter that he was obfuscating direct honesty, making it seem mysterious when there is no mystery. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is where I, I have to reveal that uh, I actually worked with uh, J. Michael Straczynski for uh, several weeks back in... I want to say 2005, I think it was. Nice. Yeah. And I, I asked him about those lines and I asked him about those words and he wouldn't tell me, bastard. <laughs> Probably because <laughs> he has no answer. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember David Lynch talking about his movie Eraserhead and um, he said it was his most spiritual film. And the interviewer said, can you elaborate on that? And he said, no. watch the movie (laughs) you're missing the point right and i think that's kind of the thing is that having that mystery in there and you wondering what those words are is more of the point than actually no answer could be satisfactory yeah that is true so so noah can you for the benefit of mark and uh, others who haven't seen the show can you give a uh uh, a brief synopsis of the the storyline okay so uh going from memory here i'm not like Uh, A funny thing, pretty much all of the history of Babylon 5, when it was first being put out, is still available on the same website. There's this website called midwinter.com 
that had recorded everything that, you know, as the shows were coming out, it was like a living memory, if you will. And if I wanted to, that would be a great place for me to pick up all the details here, but I don't have access to that right now. Anyway, Babylon 5 takes place, I believe, in the 24th or 25th century. Uh, You know, mankind's reached the stars and have found other major species out there. And very early on in uh, in our exploration, we started making a big name for ourselves, being the uh, the new kid on the block, and uh, you know, sort of taking on some big bad guys and punching them in the nose. Then we ended up finding these people called them in Bari, and um, we kind of made a mistake with them, and they almost wiped out all of humanity. Hmm. So. Yeah, they're like they're like a thousand years ahead of us. They uh, beat the crap out of us all the way back to Earth. They were on the verge of destroying all of mankind, and then they surrendered right on the hmm. cusp of when they were supposed to be, t- you know, t- wiping out the human race. They just dropped their arms and surrendered, and that's one of the big mysteries of the show. Why on Earth did the Mimbari surrender right on the the verge of their uh, uh, victory? Hmm. Um, this is one of those things when I was saying about. The, the the pilot that that mystery is is mentioned in there and it's one of the things that made you realize oh my god there's something they're going somewhere with this there's a plan here they're not just dropping that for no reason so anyway the show itself takes place 10 years after the earth mimbari war and it is about this place called babylon 5 which is the fifth space station that they built to try and act as a intergalactic united nations the other ones are either blew up or or disappeared without a trace, which again laid down another mystery. I mean, their Babylon Four just disappeared twenty four hours after it became operational. No mm-hmm. one knows what happened to it. So again, another mystery laid down in the pilot episode. What happened to it? So the premise basically is is that rather than where than Star Trek, where the Enterprise is going off to all these different distant worlds, you know, finding new things that no one's ever seen before. Here you've got one static place and everyone is coming to them and you've got you're dealing with intergalactic politics and, uh, you know, let people with ulterior motives and whatnot and having to get past that. The ambassadors on that uh, the, on the show are often the most entertaining people in it because of how you're seeing them deal with each other and their own little kind of, I guess you could say, scheming going on. but. All the characters in Babylon 5 are just really well-developed. I mean, they have their own arcs. They grow as people, and sometimes they fall from grace spectacularly. But you always want to see something, you know, them to climb back out of it. It's very good in that sense. But in the midst of all this, again, another mystery. Within the first season, you find out that there is this other race that no one knows about lurking in the shadows, which just happens to be their names. And uh, they end up making themselves known in the first season, but they don't really become a factor until the second season. And uh, it sort of makes you realize that Babylon 5 is the focal point for a much larger conflict that is going on. I think that's one way that I could just sort of sum up the premise of it without trying to give the whole five seasons out. Yeah. Well, I think okay. You're making your case, man. I'm I'm intrigued. It definitely sounds yeah. very good. I really like the fact that like I think all of the characters have an arc and they're all well developed. So, how did this affect your own work and your own writing? Well, for one thing, I I'm it 
comes down to consequences. Uh, I mean, I always liked books that would, the events of one story leads into the next, leads into the next. Um, and that's what I'm currently writing now with the uh, the Get Lost saga. Uh, I'm now trying to tie up the threads from the first two into that. And when I was younger, I watched more TV than I did read books. So it had more of an influence on me because it was like it was behaving like a book, but it was on television and it made me think, oh, my God, this is possible. You can actually do this. I've often said that uh, without Babylon 5, we probably never would have got Game of Thrones. Someone needed to be first to show the viability for something that isn't just episodic, but will actually, you know, give a complete and satisfying story. Although how satisfying Game of Thrones ended up being is a matter of debate. <laughs> yeah, that's about the time that I started watching television again was sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And I think the first thing that I saw that made me really rethink this was Mad Men because there was the same sort of character development over time and there was an arc to the story. But then Breaking Bad, that was just that's what blew me away was was that that the arc of that. And that was clearly same as you said with Babylon 5, Gilligan obviously had got the arc planned before he started writing anything. Yeah. I just finished watching uh, Breaking Bad, actually, the whole series. And uh, apparently Jesse was not supposed to be a regular character. He was only supposed to be in the first few episodes. Really? And, uh, yeah, but he blew them away. He was such a great part of that show. I I can't imagine the show without him. No, yeah, yeah either. Yeah, me either. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so Babylon 5, does it hold up? Ooh, good question. In all ways but one. <laughs> and that's the CGI. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I, I mean the CGI is is watchable. It's not that bad, but it, it does, it's definitely one of the weaker elements of it. They were trying to, as opposed to use models like uh, Star Trek's Next Generation was and Deep Space Nine at the time, they, they were trying to do all of their special effects via computer. And it's not bad or anything, but the problem is, especially now, you can't help but look at it and go, man. I, I wish I wish this could get updated. I wish somebody could just redo all the special effects. But uh, for various reasons, it seems like that's not really viable. Huh. Yeah. And uh, they were the first uh, series, science fiction series to really use CGI to that extent, weren't they? To that extent, absolutely. There were others. I mean, even Star Trek did use um, um, CGI in some things, you know, not for the main ships, but sometimes like as time went on, some other ships might have been done like that or some creatures and whatnot. But yeah, the Babylon 5 is the first one to sort of do it extensively. But the problem is, is that you see the mesh. When you see the CGI meshing with the live action, sometimes you just sort of takes you out of it a little bit. But hey, at uh, least it's not old school Doctor Who bad. But but <laughs> you watch you watch Star Trek the original series, the enormous boulders and whatnot that um, you know that styrofoam. That, yeah, the the, the styrofoam <laughs> basically the jiggles when every time somebody walks in the set. And yet the story is compelling enough to move you past that, I think. Part of it is also, though, that even though those props look fake, they are at the very, you do see them as real. I mean, that's always the problem with bad CGI is that it isn't just that it doesn't look right. It doesn't look real. You may recognize that yeah. boulder as being styrofoam, but at least it's physically there. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. 
So how much? Okay, as we're trying to sell Mark on watching the show. Yeah, yeah you've lost me now on the on the CGI. I gotta admit, because bad CGI. Well, you can get is past really it. You can watch. get past it. It's just it is. You did ask, and you know that is the one thing. If I had to complain about one thing that didn't hold up, it would as well as the rest. It would be that. So just fast forward through all the the space fighting scenes, where all the ships are fighting. Honestly, no, you wouldn't want to. For oh. one thing, the CGI not only does it get better over time. They, the, this was a show that tried to use, it was one of the first to try to use real physics in how oh, the ships behaved yeah. in there. So it was really cool to be watching ships where, for example, the fighters that are called Star Furies, they'd be flying around one way, they would use their thrusters to then flip around, and the momentum would still keep them flying backwards, but they'd be facing behind them to shoot, you know, like using... Yeah physics to a tactical way really helped immerse you in the sense of the reality of it. I mean, some of the science in it is, or the science fiction is so advanced that it might as well be magic. You know, um, the Mimbari have artificial gravity, for example, you know, but then again, so does the enterprise. Yeah. But when you see the little things like zero G being handled correctly, that just always makes me feel warm. The only one, I mean, I, th then you get this show like The Expanse. I love comparing the two shows, the um, Babylon 5 yeah. and The Expanse, because if Babylon 5 is the Lord of the Rings in science fiction, then The Expanse is the Game of Thrones of science fiction. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask does, you about It the handles the, yeah. the, the physics and, and logic even better in terms of uh, how they handle space. Yeah, because I'm I really fascinated by how well they do that. I mean, I think that it's pretty well done. Um, I'm not a physicist, so there's probably still little errors that you've made. They've made, but it also does oh, the yeah. same thing in terms of characters, right? Like it's the characters have arcs and they develop and they don't forget Absolutely, what happened the yeah. week before. Yeah, it's great. Actually, you mentioned the the physics things in the first season of The Expanse. There was a bit where they're like clinging to the outside of a ship, and one of them ends up letting go of a wrench when they were trying to repair something, and it flies off. And yeah. after the fact, they realize that shouldn't have happened, should, right? Yeah. You know, there's nothing to make it go flying back. You know, it, it should have stayed exactly where it was. They're all going yeah. in the same momentum. But it, it added to the drama of the moment. Uh, but because of that, when they, they caught that mistake late, but because of that, they decided every season they worked that wrench back into a scene <laughs> just as a kind of an homage to remind themselves yeah, we about you know, <laughs> trying to be to do better, to not make those kind of mistakes. The wrench would wow. show up again. Now, the uh, so the CGI, was it not an issue in the 90s when the show was first out because the TV sets just weren't as good? So you weren't seeing the mesh that and certainly helped i mean you know having four what, what was it back then 480p was was the what a, um, a crt a cathode ray tube television set was typically using yeah like before hd i guess you wouldn't see as much of a difference between those effects and say star trek next generation because of that lesser resolution but it really does stand out more now right yeah i have been tempted to go back and watch uh, babylon 5 I saw the um, the series premiere. I knew it was coming because I'd been reading J. Michael Straczynski and Writer's Digest. He had a column and he'd been talking about it. For some reason, I was skeptical. And I saw the pilot and I wasn't actually that impressed. So I didn't watch the series when it came out. But then a friend of mine at work said, you have to watch this. This is amazing. And he gave me all these VHS tapes with the series on it. And after watching two or three episodes, I was completely hooked and then watched it to the end because... It was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, um, Straczynski was also one of the first people to sort of work social media in terms of getting his message out there before there even was a social media. 
I think he was using a thing called Usenet or something like that at the time, but basically message yep. boards. He he was using message boards at the time to try and engage with the fan, the potential fan base. Even before there was a show, he was trying to get people interested in the idea of it and getting them all worked up about it. And then when the show was going on, he would interact with them and talk to them about the show. And that's why what the, the, the Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5, that thing from Midwinter, still exists. That was one of the things that he ended up like sort of being interviewed on, if you will. But yeah, yeah the, it, it's just sort of amazing that he sort of saw the importance of engaging directly with the fan base. And when after the pilot episode happened, he was sort of working them to encourage Warner Brothers to get the first season made. Yeah, he did so many things right. Yeah. And he was only in his thirties at the time. Just, yeah. Yeah. Mark. Yeah. I was going to say, I just, I just popped open the midwinter.com page and it, just to look at the guide. And if you want to see classic 1995 web design, bingo, we found a winner. It, <laughs> it does, does not change. It does not age. Well, <laughs> look at on my, yeah, yeah but it's, it's like a time capsule. I, I'm is, glad yeah. they left it that way. Yeah, it is a time cool. capsule for that era. It is. And, you know, and it's, you know, it loads fast. I'll give it that. Like there's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like on, on my uh, iMac screen, it's, it does not age well. <laughs> it does not look good. <laughs> so, so Noah, do you have a favorite uh, Babylon 5 episode? Uh, let's see. Well, the finale, I mean, the finale makes me cry every time. Uh, the uh, Sleeping in Light, the very last episode that takes place 20 years after the, uh, the, the, the series proper. That one's just so beautifully done. But um, now there's a lot of what JMS would him, himself call BAM episodes, like ones where various threads would sort of come together and just really hit you hard. You know, like, for example, the when... So bad things are happening on Earth. There's this dictator named Clark that has won the presidency by assassinating uh, the like he was vice president. He assassinated the president and became president. But then so you have the, the Earth turning into something very dark, if you will. And Babylon 5 decides to secede from the uh, from the Earth Alliance at that time. And when that happens, Earth tries to come and take them back. And the Mimbari come to save the day. And that leads to one of the most iconic moments of the entire show. It just, you know, it just gives you chills down your spine every time you see it happen. I, I can't really go into details. On, otherwise, I'm just going to be quoting the show directly. Right. Well, and I think you're doing a good job of, for the people who haven't seen it, you really haven't spoiled anything yet either. Like, I feel like I could just go watch the show and I'm not going to be. Yeah, I'm still going to be surprised. I hope, by those I hope I'm not yeah. spoiling anything. Yeah. No, no, That's but great. you're and you're teasing it uh, splendidly. You're teasing it really well. Yeah, good yeah. job. You're, yeah, you obviously can market. <laughs> Uh, if only I can do that for my own books. Yeah, that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay, so apart from the um, the series arc and, and the season long arcs, and you know, and what uh, Straczynski did well on social media and, and that sort of thing. What else makes Babylon 5 special and work so well? Well, the big thing is, is that it feels like a future that has been lived in. That was always how they described Star Wars, for example. He want, uh, George Lucas wanted the, that world to feel lived in, as opposed to all the clean cut, you know, 
sterile white is ship interiors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you wanted to look like that if you were in an X wing, you know, if you look down in the cockpit, you might find an empty beer can down there or something, that kind of a vibe. (laughs) And I think Babylon five does something similar. It, it doesn't take the utopia approach of star Trek. Everything looks functional. Everything looks plausible, real and lived in. I mean, the uniforms have pockets. There you go. End of story. Unlike Star (laughs) Trek. Uniforms, that's a logical thing to have. Pockets. <laughs> Is it your favorite science fiction series, television series? It was for the longest time. It is now tied with The Expanse. The Expanse is easily my also my favorite, but for completely different reasons. It's like the two uh, occupy two different parts of the science fiction spectrum. Um, The Expanse feels more gritty and realistic. And yet at the same time, there is, despite the very dark themes that it goes into, there is a strong element of hope to it. I heard some people refer to The Expanse in terms of the uh, genre of hope punk, which is sort of uh, the uh, what meant to be the anathema of grimdark. Because sometimes, like, to me, Game of Thrones is more grimdark. It's just meant to be, yes, it's realistic, but it's also meant to just sort of beat down your expectations of positivity because it's like, nope, nope, we're bastards. We screw each other. And in The Expanse, that's there. But there is always this sense of, but we could do better. And the the main crew of the Rosinante live up to that. You know, there, there is that yeah. realism. There is that sense of, yeah, you're just a cog in the machine and greater forces are you are at play. And, you know, you can't always win, but we can do better. And Babylon 5 was great at doing that, too. It wasn't a utopia. It's not Star Trek and where, you know, there's no such thing as money. Nope, money is important. Greed still exists. But there is always this sense of we can do better. And that made it a very, not just, so I said it felt like a lived in universe, but it also made it feel like despite its flaws, it was one I would like to live in. Right. And, and I feel like a part of that spirit came from Commander Sheridan, which then Hmm. begs the question to me, uh, do you have a favorite character? from Babylon 5. Sheridan and Delenn's romance is definitely one of the high points of the show. And you gotta love Sheridan's arc because he starts off very... I won't say naive because he's been in, he, he's been through the ringer. He was a survivor of the Earth Mimbari War, and he's he, he's been engaged in combat plenty of times. But when he takes over Babylon Five, he does have this kind of optimism to him, and. JMS warned him, you know, to enjoy that while you can, because he's going to put him through the ringer over the next few seasons. (laughs) And he does. And while it does change who Sheridan is, at the same time, it more, if anything, hardens the values that he did have before as to why they were important. You know, like that. So the optimism may not be there. He may be a bit harder and whatnot, but the goodness within him has remained, which is really important. It's just been crystallized as a result of what he's gone through. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I like that. Mark, is there anything else you need to know? No, it's a great way to motivate your characters. Like that's a great motivation for a character is like that we can do better. That's, I mean, that's the expanse for sure. Like the, some of the main characters, there's definitely, that's what drives their decisions sometimes, especially the lead character, I think. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I can't think of anything else to ask because I think you've convinced me. Uh, if I can find it, I'll maybe watch it. <laughs> yeah. I would say, Noah Chen, you have made an excellent case for Babylon 5. Oh, oh thank you very much. Anything else you care to add before we uh, part ways? 
Well, um, no, not so much. I mean, I was just thinking in terms of my own writing and how it influenced it. And that was the balance of humor and seriousness. Because in my own writing, for my for the, the Get Lost saga, I, I have a hard time trying to explain to people about the role humor plays. Because it's not a comedy, but there is a lot of humor. And... I guess you could say it's sort of like comparing Indiana Jones and you know Raiders of the Lost Ark, comparing that to Brendan Fraser's The Mummy. You know, yeah. the The Mummy is a much funnier, not quite as serious adventure, but at the same time, you wouldn't call it a comedy. So Babylon Five manages to have a very strong sense of humor at times, especially like when it comes to Londo Malari and Jakar. There's things that happen in there are just hilarious. Yeah. But you would in no way refer to this show as a comedy just because it knows it knows when to have levity. And that definitely influenced my own writing in that sense, because I got a strong sense of humor, but I'm not afraid to kill characters off. <laughs> So if, if we were to point uh, potential readers at uh, one book to start with, with your work, what would it be? Probably Lost Souls. That's the one I'm most proud of at the moment. I, I mean, I've got lots of books I'm proud of, but at this moment, what I'm doing with the Get Lost Saga is really making me happy because of how everything's connecting. And Lost Souls is the first in that series. What I like about how I approach the humor in it is that it comes from a point of not making the universe absurd, but pointing out the absurdities that already exist. I mean, you it's like the real world in that sense. You do you can make a silly modern day universe, or you can look at how things actually are and realize, nope, it's already pretty darn absurd as it is. <laughs> how do we satirize this? This is crazy. Yeah. I mean, there's but no need to. You All you need it. to I do mean, is point out the reality from a certain point of view, yeah. and it becomes absurd. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm sorry, the genre of Lost Souls is science fiction? Um, so, space opera, science space fiction. Opera. Okay, cool. All right. Noah, thank you very much for uh, joining our podcast, uh, Recreative. Thank you for having me. Great job. been listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description, and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.
Free Creative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.